starting at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idols and, and idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What do we rejoice in in our life? We rejoice when we have success, yes. We rejoice when we have prosperity. We rejoice in our health. Well, maybe not so much rejoice in our health, but rejoice when we get healthy again after we've been unhealthy. And these are reasonable things to rejoice in. What robs us of our joy, though? Sickness, lack of health, health problems, adversities, loss. Sometimes not getting what we want or not having what we want. Sometimes we grumble when we are living that way. In today's passage, we have three phrases. They're separated into three verses. And yet I think it's one inseparable thought, intricately interconnected. And it's God's will for us that we do these three things, that we rejoice always, that we pray without ceasing, and that we give thanks in everything. Before we look at the text, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word and for this passage and for what it encourages us to do and to think about, that we might draw near to you that we might live our life in your presence, that we might have unceasing, unending joy in you. We pray, Lord, that as we consider these things, you would open our hearts to see and to hear and to understand them. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So rejoice always. Does this mean that God places our own joy, our own happiness as the chief end of man? I think we know the answer to that. We've heard, though, people say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Live your best life now. And various other catchy sayings that make people really want to live that life and join those teachers. We'll come back to them a little later this morning, and Lord willing, next week when we cover verses 19 to 22, we'll consider them again. But what should we be rejoicing in? Should we rejoice in the things that make us happy? 
even if it's sin, even if it's worldliness? Remember we read in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Not a believer if you love the world. For all that is in the world, here's the reason, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, remember when we covered that passage, we considered those three broad categories given. Things that are of the world. They either were not part of God's original creation, and they're things that men have made, or they're perversions and corruptions of the things that God gave that are good. The first of these was the desires of the flesh. When we talked about it, we talked about the sinful cravings that we're tempted with from within. Of themselves, they're not necessarily bad. Food, drink, marital relations, such things have no sin in themselves. They become sinful when they're corrupted and perverted by a godless world. Used as God intended, those are holy items, holy things. When corrupted by the world and the flesh and the devil, they become gluttony, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and they're of the world and they're sinful. We shouldn't, should not, and we really must not rejoice in the sinful things before God. We can be thankful for his mercies and his grace and his blessings, yes, but we should not be rejoicing in the corruption and the sinfulness when our desires go beyond what is right before God. God has promised, because he hates those things, that he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, will be wrath and fury, Romans 2, 6-8. We need to not be rejoicing for the sinful things that make us happy, but we should be rejoicing for the holy things that God gives us. The second one, the desires of the eyes, the sinful desires that tempt us from without, Really, they're much the same as we just spoke about. The third one, the pride of life, is often where we get into the most trouble. Uh, Literally, empty boastings about the things of this life, the things of this world. Uh, Paul refers to them as civilian affairs, and they get called the world's goods, the world's things. Really, it's about our place and our comfort in this world. And when that's set against our place in the kingdom of heaven, and they come into conflict, we have then things that we should not have and not celebrate. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be happy and be with the joys the Lord gives us. I remember when I first became a Christian going out with my pastor to visit people, and he pointed to a house. I said, I've been to that house many times. The woman there says she wants to become a Christian, but not yet. And when she becomes a Christian, there's this other church in town that teaches you can't wear a dress, you can't, or you have to wear a dress, you can't wear makeup, you can't own a TV, you can't read anything but Bible, and various other super restrictive things. And I just kind of shook my head and said she has no understanding of what 
the grace of the, God, the Lord is and the things that he has given us. In my later years, I learned the book of Ecclesiastes really is the answer to worldliness on one side and the Stoicism practically on the other side. And in there we read that Solomon perceived there's nothing better for them, the people who work under this toil under the sun, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toils. This is God's gift to man, Ecclesiastes 3, 12, and 13. It's okay to rejoice in the things God gives us. It's okay to enjoy rest when it's time to rest. It's okay to enjoy pleasures when it's time to be pleased. It's okay to eat good quality food instead of sloppily made food. It's not sinful in any way. It's when it becomes inordinate, when we start to love those things more than God, when we crave the things we're not allowed to have, or we start thinking about using methods to get them that are not morally right, or when we grumble that we don't have them. Now, when I was in the military, the food was atrocious, and I remember one holiday, I forget what holiday it was, they had roast beef. And I'm thinking, oh, roast beef, yum. And I get up there and I get this wedge of roast beef dropped on my plate. Cut like a, not like a steak, but just like a big chunk out of the meat. And I'm looking at that going, roast beef can be delicious. But today, it's pretty horrible. <laughs> I'd rather have regular food. Uh, we, some, there's no need for that as Christians. We don't need to deny ourselves every possible pleasure we're to take joy in the things the Lord gives us in our toil under the sun and be happy in all of what God has given us. That's why it says rejoice always. We should be able to rejoice comfortably in the right use of the right things in our life. But of course, we also need to be able to rejoice when we don't have the world's things. Instead of grumbling, the people of Egypt we talked about earlier in a previous message in this section they grumbled about everything. Every time something went wrong, every time they didn't have what they want, every time all their pleasures were not met, they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. They faced trial after trial after trial, and their response was bitterness and scorn and grumbling, not thankfulness. James tells us, Count it a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I think James had that in mind. All the trials the people of Israel faced, all the trials the people of God always face. It says, count it a joy when you meet them. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. In mind here that all these trials of life, even persecution, sorrows, poverty, sickness, injury, setbacks, loss of our livelihood due to bad economic times or health, even cancer, even Parkinson's and heart disease, all the trials of this life, I think, are in mind. It says, count them a joy. Why? Because they make me happy. No, we're not to be masochists. We're not to enjoy suffering. Why should we be joyful in the trials? Because they test our faith. 
because they try our faith. The idea being that, the, you know, like the sea trials of a ship, the word used there is, you put it through the, the trials to see whether everything will work. You test it, but also you refine it that way. By not having what we want, we have to find our joy elsewhere. Where do we find it? Well, that's part of the message today. We find the joy in making our faith better, even though it's hard. I remember having to run in the military, and every time I ran, my ability to run improved. But I didn't take joy in that because I didn't really see being a good runner as being something I wanted. But my faith is something I really want. Something I long for, stronger faith, more faith, greater faith. To be more unshakable in the face of all that happens in life. And we get that way by trying our faith, testing our faith, exercising our faith. In other words, responding in faith to the trial with joy. Uh, People have a lot of trouble when the price of being a Christian turns out to be too high, either through persecution or through the loss of the things they love. Remember, Jesus says, "We we are like the vineyard, and the Father cuts off every branch that does not produce fruit. And those that produce fruit, he he trims, he prunes. And if you think about that, how that applies to our life, all of the things we have in this life, God cuts off the ones that are no good, cuts off the ones that are interfering, cuts off the ones that can help us grow better in the future. If you leave the the old wood on a grapevine, eventually it stops producing. You cut out the old wood so that new wood grows and the new wood will produce the fruit. And that's, I think, the illustration he's making in our life. God takes away things we love, not because he's cruel and evil, but so that we can grow closer to him and be more fruitful in him. The longer I'm a Christian, the more times I see that happen, the more sometimes resigned I am to Am I really looking at this in the right way? Is my joy in what God has given me good joy? Or has it turned into a sinful joy? Is it something that needs to be taken away or put away before it's taken away? Those are things we sometimes need to think about because God has promised us suffering and persecution. Remember, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second Timothy three, twelve and thirteen. I often ask people, think about it myself, do you want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus? If you do, you will be persecuted. The two go hand in hand. You can't be godly and not be persecuted. That's what God is promising. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not my own, but the father's who sent me. John 14, 23 and 24. If you want to lead a godly life, you will be persecuted in Christ Jesus. If you don't want to lead a godly life, then you don't belong to Christ. You're not saved. 
It's that simple. You're not a Christian. So if you are a Christian, or you want to be a Christian, persecution and suffering are part of our life here in this world. How can we rejoice in those? Well, we already talked about it. Those are the tools to exercise and build our faith. Those are the things that will make us better believers, better Christians, more fruitful Christians. We should take to heart what Jesus said to the 72. Remember, he sent them out in Luke 10 to go ahead of himself into all the towns. He sent them out two by two to all the towns Jesus was going to be visiting. And they went and they ministered and they drove out evil spirits and they shared the gospel and called them to repentance. And they came back with great joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And that's when Jesus said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That's not to be the source of our joy. Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, 17 through 20. Even the best of what we can have in this life is less a cause for joy than knowing that our names are written in heaven. We should rejoice in God, in Jesus Christ, in salvation, in that hope. Paul tells us, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Romans 12, 12. Remember what the basis for that is back in Romans 5. First five verses. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And so we have peace with God, and that is the reason why we are to rejoice in the hope of God, the hope of the glory of God, the glory of his coming. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope, Romans 15:13. You know, the things we rejoice in, the hope that we have, comes through our faith in Christ and all that he has done, our reconciliation to God, our peace with God. The greatest possible joy in life comes from that reconciliation with God. For if we were enemies, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5, 10 and 11. We have this great hope in Christ. This great hope in what he has done for us. The greatest possible joy in our life really should come through that hope. The Christian rejoices That though we were enemies with God, though we have sinned and the wages of sin is death, though we deserve the torments of hell for all eternity for our sin, 
Yet somehow through Christ we have been reconciled to God and given the great promise that Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that you may also be with me. We rejoice in what God has promised to us. What is that place that we are hoping for? What is that place that is the purpose of the Christian's life? It is not this world, and it is not the things of this world, it is not this age. If all we have for hope in Christ is this life, we are of all men to be most pitied. But John tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelation 21, 1-7. How can we rejoice in the life that we live here on this earth, remembering that it is not the end? knowing with certainty and confidence that our hope will not be betrayed, that we will be with him forever in such a wonderful place as John described here in Revelation 21. We should rejoice in our life, in the grace that we have been given, even sufferings, knowing what comes to us. In a little longer version of our passage today in Philippians 4, Paul says in verses 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about every, anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What a great passage of hope and rejoicing in our life. Rejoice, why? Because God is there, that God is with us, that he will meet our needs. We should be thankful for the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And that is ours if we have our hope and our joy in the right things. Yes, rejoice forevermore at all times and all conditions. Rejoice forever. Rejoice for eternity. That is what we are called to do. But note that our joy is intricately connected with the other two verses we're considering today. The first being pray without ceasing. We all know this. We remember the parable Jesus told of the persistent widow. He told them a parable that you should always pray and not lose heart. 
In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Luke 18, 1-8 We should pray without ceasing, never losing heart, never losing hope, but trusting always in God. We have a model for our ceaseless prayer in that parable, but we also have a model for how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. That's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And I want us to remind, uh, remember a couple of principles we find in there. The first one is often overlooked because it's the first verse of the chapter. Beware of practicing your righteousnesses before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Romans 6, one. That's often excluded from teaching on prayer, but I think it's very important. And it's in keeping with what he says in verse 5 and 6. Do not pray like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward in secret, verses 5 to 7. Certainly corporate prayer is important, praying publicly and with others and for others, praying together. But prayer in private is what is to be treasured and what we are to do without ceasing. We, we see that and those two things together, and we need to remember that they are intricately connected, not praying to be seen by others so that we get their praise and their respect and honor, but praying to God. Note that first verse is then he then moves on to talking about giving to the needy, verses 2 through 4, the section on the Lord's Prayer, 5 through 15, then fasting, then laying up treasure, then judging others, then asking and you'll be given, then the golden rule. Then he talks about the tree and the fruit, saying to those who come to him, I never knew you, building our house upon the rock, when he finished all those sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For his teaching is one who had authority, not as their scribes. But he is giving us these instructions. He is giving us instruction in the authority of God. And God wants us to be sure to pray to him in private, where it's just he and I, he and you, and he has promised to hear and to reward. Why did I mention all those other passages? Well, they really are all connected. The Sermon on the Mount is one big sermon, and all the points go together, including chapter 5. We have the Beatitudes, salt and light, Christ fulfilling the law, dealing with anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving our enemies, 
All of those things are really covered in this Christianity 101 book, First Thessalonians. And all of them are reviewed here in this last section that we've been going through for the last few weeks. And so it's important to remember. So the first one, we don't need to, we shouldn't pray to show our holiness, to show our eloquence, to show our ability, or to be seen and praised by others. Yes, corporate prayer is good. Corporate prayer is required. Praying together in a prayer meeting is a wonderful thing, but that is not the only prayer. And that is not to be done for our glory, but for the mutual encouragement and edification of us. We need, though, to be in our prayer closet alone, privately praying with God. The second principle we see in the Sermon on the Mount when we pray always is do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 6, 7, and 8. Simple, clear, specific prayer is good. Long, repetitive prayers where you pray for the same thing over and over again are not good. God knows what we need. I remember being asked once, if God is unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, what's the use of prayer? And my answer to the lady was, she was very sincere. She was not being, you know, Evil. She was not trying to provoke or to, ah, I gotcha. She was sincere. She wanted to know. And my answer to her was, well, first, God knows all things, including whether you will pray or not, and how you will pray, and whether your heart will be right in your prayer. And therefore, he has unchangeably foreordained what will happen as a result of that prayer. But that doesn't absolve you from responsibility to having the right attitude in your heart, the right desires, and to actually pray. We can't just say, well, God knows, so it's up to him. Because it says, well, you didn't do what I told you to do. Therefore, you won't get what you want. And so prayer is called for, but we don't need to be endlessly repeating the same things over and over again. I remember for a while there, the prayer of Jambez was a popular book. In fact, there was a pile of them in the Christian bookstore in Cambodia. And I was appalled to see it. You know, magic prayers that get you what you want if you repeat these things carefully over and over again, they're not Christian. They come from other religions. So that was the second principle. Clear, concise, simple prayers. So what does it mean to pray without ceasing then? Shouldn't I keep praying the same words over and over again? Well, no. What you should do is keep praying, like that widow in the parable. Don't give up. Keep asking until you get an answer. Keep asking over and over and over again every time you go to prayer. I remember the Puritans, one of the Puritans I was reading on this section said, you know, it requires us then to pray in the morning and pray in the evening. I said, well, that's not without ceasing. Pray all day long. I learned early in my Christian life, the only way for me to overcome my tendency to be angry when provoked and provoked back was while they were provoking me before they finished, start praying. And it works. You know, we can pray continually through the day for everything that's happening. It doesn't have to be a long five, ten minute prayer, 15 minute prayer. It can be a few words. 
When I get in the car, Lord, preserve me on my journey. Keep me safe. Keep me from accidents. Keep me alert. Bring me to my destination right with you. Very short prayers are good. And that's what praying without ceasing, I think, is really all about. Whenever we see the need, whenever we see the problem, whenever we see a situation or wherever we have an issue asking for help, but also we should not forget the next verse with thanksgiving for everything. Whenever something good happens, we can thank God in prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you that I got here safely. Thank you that that car that just swerved out in front of me that I wasn't two seconds earlier and got hit. I've had those prayers quite a few times. Not over here on the West Coast where people are a little more laid back, but back east. You know, we can be thankful too, and we should be thankful in our prayers at all times. What should we pray for? Well, who should we pray for? Well, pray for ourselves and our holiness and our relationship with God. Pray for our sanctification, our spiritual growth, our needs. Pray for grace. We grow in spiritually through grace. Pray for our grace. But don't just pray for ourselves. Pray for one another in the church. Pray for the believers around the world. Pray for everyone. We're admonished to pray for the leaders, both that God would restrain them in their sin, but also that God would give them grace to have the things they want so they won't sin. And pray for their salvation. Pray for their repentance to turn from their evil course. If we pray, God hears. And if we pray long, many times, long enough time, God may change the leaders and their attitudes, that his kingdom can be advanced because that is his purpose, his goal. So we pray for everyone. And what do we pray for? Well, I touched on it already, but most importantly for salvation. What greater cause for joy is there in our life and in the life of the church than to see people come to know the Lord, to see people repent of their sins and turn back to the Lord, to see even the brother who stumbled restored to their faith. Remember the parable of the lost sheep? After he gives the parable of the finding the sheep and the rejoicing and celebration of the finding of the sheep, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Luke 15, 7. And he gives a following, another parable, a follow-up parable of the lost coin. And there in verse 10, he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we should not only rejoice when somebody who offends us repents, but rejoice in the repentance of people and want to long to see and pray for the repentance of others as well as ourselves. Being sure, of course, since there's joy in heaven over repentance of a sinner, and all of us are still sinners, we should be careful then to repent and to pray our repentance to God. There was a principle in You may have noticed in my list in the Sermon on the Mount of the golden rule. Do to others what you want them to do to you. Well, that's a good rule to use in prayer. 
He taught prayer just before that, how to pray. Pray for others the things you would want them to pray for you for. If they have needs, if they're in trouble, if they're in sin, we don't pray for their destruction. That's not what we want them to pray for us. We pray for their repentance, their recovery, their health, their good, their growth in grace. All of those things that we would pray for ourselves, we should pray for for others. And we should do that continually and note verse 18, giving thanks in all circumstances. You know, you ever done a favor for somebody and they're like, yeah, I deserve that. Thank you. They don't say thank you. They say, well, that's right. You did what you needed to do. You did what you should do. You did what you were supposed to do. Do we uh, feel inspired to do another favor for them? Not so much, right? God in his perfect holiness does many great good things for us that we do not deserve. And he expects us to be thankful for all the good that he does us. Certainly there are many things when we pray that we're not so thankful about. And it's okay to weep before God. It's okay to grieve before God. It's okay to lament the situation before God. As long as we don't grumble about it. We're not angry at him. We're just sorrowful for what has happened. If we read the Psalms, you know, many of them, especially David's Psalms, are him pouring out his heart. How long, O Lord? Don't turn away from me forever. Turn back to me. Forgive me. Uh, How long will you allow the wicked to persecute me, the evil to do injustice to me? How long will you allow my suffering? It's okay to pray like that, but we should also pray with thanksgiving for everything that happens. For our salvation, we know that it is an unmerited gift. We did not deserve salvation. We do not say to God, yep, I'm good now, you have to save me. Okay, you don't deserve thanks. You're doing what you're obligated to do. I said the magic incantation, the sinner's prayer. I'm saved. You have no choice. That's not how we respond to God. When we respond to God for salvation, it's I deserve hell. Thank you for giving me the grace and the salvation that I don't deserve. Don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, in him there was no variation or shadow did it change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. James 1, 16 through 18. Now, not just salvation, but all the good things we have in life are really a gift of God, and we should be thankful for them. Thankful that our health is not worse. Thankful that our situation in life is not more dire, no matter how bad it may be. Thankful that we do not go to hell forever, but will be with Christ in heaven with God forever. We need to also remember to thank him for making the world and sustaining the world. We would not have life if God had not decided to make us. We would not be able to continue if God did not sustain us. Remember, he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything we have is him giving it to us even now. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 1.3 All the good things that happened to us 
happened to us through him. And we don't really deserve any of it. Now, people, I keep seeing, I read too much news sometimes, people talking about hell, you know, how they want to be a prince in hell, how you know, you'll get stronger and more mighty and more capable in hell. And the hell of the Bible is just a place of misery and suffering. There's no growth, there's no hope, there's no improvement, there's no better life than living with God, which the fantasy of men have. We've been freed from that. We've been told that if we love the Lord, we should rejoice in all that he has done. Indeed, if you'll obey my commandments, God says, that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, he will give you rain on the land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. He will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Deuteronomy 11:13-15. Without God, we do not have those blessings in our life. He has promised them to us. He is the one who gives it, both to us and to the wicked, yes, but it is a gift from him. And we should remember and be thankful for that. We should also be thankful that he cares for us. Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you, First Peter 5, 7. What a thing to be thankful for. We have someone to go to in our troubles. Somebody to cast our anxiety, our concern, our fears, our troubles. We, you know, we've all been there, I think, in this room when we go to the doctor and the report's not so good. Or we look at our finances and the report's not so good. Or we look at our life and there's something wrong. We can go to the Lord and talk to him about it. We can talk to the Lord in prayer about the situation in our nation and the situation in our community situation in our life. Cast that care upon him and know that he is sovereign over all of those things. And that if we put our hope and our trust in him, it won't be disappointed. Things may go from bad to worse, but our joy is knowing that it's in his hands. And all the great promises he has made for us, all the wonderful promises he has given us, are still true, no matter what's happening around us. Eternity is one of the great things we're to be thankful for, that beautiful picture of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.13 that we are waiting for that new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of the things going on in our life are nothing compared to the future promises. Our present suffering is brief, momentary, and not severe enough to take our joy away from what God is giving us and God has promised us. And as I said, we do have all those great and wonderful promises. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. If we think about the great promises he has made to us, why wouldn't I be thankful? Why wouldn't I have joy? He has promised 
First and foremost, those who know, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. I don't have to worry about my health, my financial situation, my community, my country, my world falling apart. I know God is sovereign over those things, and I know he has promised to work it out for my good. Whatever I may suffer, whatever troubles I may endure, whatever persecution I may have, whatever misery I may go through, he has promised that it will work out for my good in the end, and I can be confident. And whenever something good happens to me, I can think of about that. God promised that this will work out one way or another for my good. Here I've seen it in the here and now today. Praise God, thank God in prayer. Have joy in my life. You know, the Christian who has only sorrow and only grief, the Christian who thinks only of bitter things, the sorrow, the, you know, the restrictions they find in the word, the life lived without joy, they're not living a Christian life. They're falling far short of what God has given them. We have that promise that it will work out for our good. Regarding our salvation to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 1.12. We can have great thankfulness. I am now a child of God. I am not a child of the devil anymore. I have a new life. I'm a new creation in Christ. I can have joy in that. When we face these trials and sin and are tempted into them, we can have great hope in the promise that no temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man, and God is faithful and just. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, we don't always seek that way of escape. We don't always reach that way of escape. But the promise that it is there. If we face a trial, if we face a temptation, if we face one of our besetting sins and we're about to give in, we know that there's a way out. We have that great promise. And we should be thankful for that and be joyful that he has given us those, that he doesn't force us to sin, that we always have the ability to turn away from it. We should be thankful for our sanctification and pray for that also. All of these things we're thankful for are things we should be praying for too. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely and your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You may notice we read that earlier. That's a couple of verses down, a couple of weeks out in his doxology at the end of this chapter. Notice, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. All the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God in his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has put his seal upon us and has given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. He concludes this three, three verses with the words, this is the will of God for Christ Jesus in you. 
Uh, certainly it applies to verses 12 through 18. I think it probably applies to this whole section of verses 12 through 22, the review of the basic Christian principles in life. But really the idea applies to the, the whole book and the whole Bible. And it's God's will for us that he reveals to us and his will for us in our life is that we should rejoice in all the things that he has done for us, all the things that he has given to us. We should be prayerful about all of those things, and we should be giving thanks for all of those things, even the trials that strengthen our faith and challenge us. We should be giving thanks for them. That is God's will for our life. Specifically here, it's God's will not to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, but to rejoice that we belong to him. Rejoice with the promises he has made. Rejoice in his constant care for us. We are to draw near to the throne of grace in prayer. And to be able to do that, we should do so with thanksgiving. And we should have great joy in so doing. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies and ask your grace upon us. Grace, Lord, that we would be able to consider the trials of our life a joy, that we would be able to rejoice in all things, things that seem good and seem bad, though the world might think we're foolish and crazy. We know your great and precious promises that you have given to us. We know the hope of Christ. We know the certainty of salvation. We know of eternity. And we therefore, Lord, can be thankful in all that happens in the life as this life prepares us to be with you. And we ask, Lord, for mercy on us that we would be able to carefully consider the joy of every situation, that we would be able to consider the things that we can thank you for in every situation, and that we would be before you continually in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.